Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Mr. Choi Shing Kwok, Director and Chief Executive Officer of the ICS Yusof Ishak Institute and Head of the ASEAN Study Center and Singapore APEC Study Center. They discuss ASEAN perspectives on issues in the Indo-Pacific. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, joined by my colleague Jude Blanchett. I'm in West Virginia this time, not in Australia, back home for a few weeks. And we're delighted to be joined from Singapore by Mr. Choi Shin Kwok, the Director and Chief Executive Officer of the Institute for Southeast Asian Studies, the Yusuf Ishak Institute. Well regarded, followed by many around the world for their excellent analysis and their surveys on ASEAN attitudes towards international affairs. And we're going to get to that survey the annual edition just came out. Jude will go into that. Mr. Kwok has had quite a career serving as Singapore's permanent secretary in the Ministry of Transportation, permanent secretary in the Ministry of the Environment and Water Resources and so forth. But we always start, Shin Kwok, by asking our guests, how did you get into this business? Why didn't you become a, a banker or something your parents really wanted you to, to do? First of all, thank you, Mike, for having me on your program. On that question, yeah, it's it's a good question. I don't know the answer myself. <laughs> My early career actually was uh, sort of guided by the opportunities that were given to me. So I went into the military, actually, for the first 12 years or so. Then I was asked to move into, for about 10 years, into uh, security and intelligence. And then after that, I went on to do those policy-making things that you mentioned in the introduction. And I retired five years ago. So how did I end up doing what I'm doing now? I've always had an interest in Southeast Asia, particularly the politics. I've also participated in many ASEAN multilateral forums throughout my career. So it seemed quite natural for me when I was offered this particular job to continue entertaining my hobby of watching politics in Southeast Asia that would take it. So that's how I'm where I am now. Well, the Yusuf Ishak Institute is really unparalleled in providing analytical rigor, predictive qualities to the entire world's understanding of Southeast Asian geopolitics and of ASEAN, the 10-member organization. I wanted to start by asking you how you would characterize ASEAN for the listeners of this podcast. You will have heard in recent years all kinds of characterizations. Some have argued that ASEAN is broken, that when the Tribunal on the Law of the Sea made its ruling in 2016 and ASEAN couldn't pull together a consensus to support the Philippines in its case against China, because China was able to use ASEAN consensus to pick off certain members, that that was the end of ASEAN, that ASEAN consensus was such a liability that it could no longer be a, a force in geopolitics. Others have said, no, no, it, it's quite effective still. Despite that incident, despite challenges in, in Myanmar, our friend Bill Harikastakana said, don't expect ASEAN to be a thoroughbred, it's a cow. It's only going to run as fast as a cow. So how would you characterize for listeners where ASEAN is on its journey right now? Is it growing stronger? Is it at a crossroads? Is it facing crisis? Where is ASEAN before we go into some of the survey results? Perhaps it would be meaningful if I just said a couple of things that 
really ought to be known about ASEAN, which perhaps not as well known as it should be. So first of all, I think that we have to understand that ASEAN countries actually are really very, very diverse. By diverse, I mean in terms of the ethnicity, as well as religious practices, and also not forgetting in terms of economic developmental stage. So here are 10 countries with the 11th waiting at the, in the waiting room, as it were, but they are all really very different. Secondly, I think your reference to Pilahari's uh, comment is, uh, is also a pertinent one. ASEAN is an intergovernment organization. It's not what many think of as a kind of a supranational organization. So it exists really to do what the 10 member states want. It doesn't have an independent identity. It doesn't have, a, in that sense, an overruling identity or, or power. And lastly, if I may just also say, ASEAN countries all have very different political systems. And these range from democracies of many different kinds over to communist you know, run regimes and also absolute monarchies. So this is uh, really a very diverse group of countries. So given this background, it is natural that there will be divergent interests on specific issues. And of course, there are also divergent, uh, shall we say, extents of influence and relations with external players. And this, of course, started to manifest within the association, particularly in the South China Sea. I think way back in a decade ago, already, I think there was a sign that uh, on the South China Sea, there would be some divergences when the meeting could not uh, issue a joint statement, basically because of disagreement over language on the South China Sea. So what you mentioned about the 2016 arbitral tribunal incident kind of adds on to that. But I must say that for the 2016 incident, in my view, it happened at the time in a transition between two Filipino administrations, uh, one administration that started the action to bring the issue to the tribunal. And it came out at the time when that administration was ending and a new one took its place. And so the new administration took a totally different route and actually decided not to press on with what had been for them uh, an advantage from the arbitral tribunal's decision. So the rest of ASEAN, I think, could not really very well move in its own direction if the main player in that particular case was to uh, kind of not press forward with that decision. So I think that is perhaps one of the side issues that need to be understood about that decision. Your broader question about the challenges of ASEAN, yes, there are many. I think that ASEAN has tried to grapple in various ways with the internal issues, particularly the institutional issues that I mentioned earlier about its, shall we say, its institutional weaknesses by trying to come up with the ASEAN Charter it helped in some ways, but of course, it did not entirely address all the issues. And more recently, you pointed out the Myanmar issue coming forward. That's a very big problem. 
or ASEAN, we can just talk a little bit more about it again later. But I will say that the other big issue that complicated things for ASEAN is the US-China relations, the deterioration there. And it becomes a much more complex landscape that the ASEAN countries have to navigate. You're quite right about the departure in policy from Arroyo to President Duterte in the Philippines, and it would be very hard for ASEAN to support the Philippines case if the new government didn't want to proceed. So you're right about that. What struck the partners of ASEAN about that 2016 incident, though, and I'm talking about the U.S. and Japan, Australia and others, was that the requirement for consensus within ASEAN provided an opportunity for Beijing, in particular, to block action by picking off through one means or another member states. So that that's a structural challenge within ASEAN that was always there. It's not new. But with the advent of great power relations, it just becomes much more complicated. I do want to talk before we go into the polls about your assessment of the big powers. The U.S.-China strategic competition is clearly complicating for ASEAN, and there are very different views about it within ASEAN among member states. Huge difference, for example, from Vietnam's view to, say, Singapore or Laos. But stepping away from the U.S. and China for a moment, I'd be interested in your assessment of how the other powers in the region, the other partners of ASEAN, have played their cards as the U.S.-China competition is heated up. Japan, uh, Australia, Korea, maybe the EU. Setting aside for the moment the U.S.-China competition, how are the other players in the region managing this from your perspective? Perhaps we talk about Japan first. I think that Japan has a very good relations with most of the ASEAN states. And this is a relationship that the Japanese have cultivated over many years. I, I think if we were to take a longer view of history, the fact that Japan has such good relations with the region is really remarkable. Look at quite recent history. Japan was seen by many countries as the, the power that invaded the region, that practiced quite a lot of very cruel measures when it was uh, in control in some of the ASEAN countries. Of course, after the end of the Second World War, Japan tried to transform itself, and I think it has really succeeded in rebuilding its relations with the region. So the Japanese relationship is really very good. I think that as far as its relationship with ASEAN is concerned, the Japanese were always consistent. They were always ready to take up an issue and they were someone that could be counted on. Now, the Japanese have, of course, really been moving in the economic area much more than in the strategic area. However, it did do certain, shall we say, programs using their ODA, not through ASEAN, but on a bilateral basis in helping the region to build up the Coast Guards. So I think this particular program could be seen as something that had a strategic angle in it. So the Japanese were trying to address some strategic issues through that. Largely, I think their engagement has been economic has been people-to-people, uh, -people, and I think that, that has been very successful. Now, as for the other players, I would say that the other dialogue partners of ASEAN have also relatively good relations. If I may just zoom in on some more recent developments, 
I would say that the advent of AUKUS had been something of a bit of a surprise to the region. And the fact that it was such a surprise and that ASEAN was caught quite off guard, both as an association or institution as well as for its individual members, I think that didn't go down well. So this actually, as a new development, it certainly affects ASEAN's position as a central player within the region. And therefore, it, it would have obvious effects on its uh, positioning. However, I think that most uh, ASEAN states would understand that it is not realistic for ASEAN's agency to extend to every single issue or anything that everything that affects the region. And ASEAN, in a way, by its own nature, would have little basis to intervene or interfere with sovereign decisions by its partners or even its own members. So I think the key point there would be how does this uh, agreement between uh, Australia, UK and the US, how does it affect ASEAN's fundamental interests. And I think this is something that still remains to be totally addressed. Some of the earlier concerns that were raised include the concerns about nuclear proliferation, as well as setting off a regional arms race. Those issues have received some assurances, but I don't think they will go away totally immediately. So there's a lot of criticism of the Australian, the previous Australian government for the way it surprised ASEAN in particular with the initial AUKUS announcement, which they argue, and I understand this, was the only choice they had because if they had consulted widely on the switch from the French submarine to the British American model, the French government would have sabotaged the whole thing. So former Prime Minister Morrison has made this argument, and I think he's right politically. The French would have tried to sabotage it. It would have been a bigger mess. But they paid a price reputationally in Southeast Asia. I hear that the militaries in Southeast Asia are much less concerned and understand the logic of Australia's requirement for advanced submarines than the foreign ministries or academics. I also hear that with the more recent AUKUS announcement, the new government, the Labour government, has done a better job because they're able to consulting and, and winning better understanding. Is that your sense? You said some of the doubts about nuclear proliferation would never go away. I believe that. They never went away about U.S. nuclear policy either. But do you feel like the Australian government is getting back on track with ASEAN? Certainly this new Labour government does have, uh, I think, a better approach to relations with the ASEAN countries. And it has been making considerable progress on trying to engage on, on AUKUS. I think that, yes, you're right that the militaries, the professionals will certainly understand why Australia wants this. But even within Australia, uh, I think there's a debate, right, <laughs> that, that goes on. Is this the right approach? Does this, does this really make sense strategically? So I think that those same points of debate that are being cited in the domestic discussions in Australia would be the same thing that the professionals would see. On In terms of form, I think uh, this Australian government has certainly tried to address those issues. I think the nuclear proliferation one is a little easier to address. 
But the one concerning how it sets off an arms race, I think less within the control as to what other people respond in terms of this change in, on the part of Australia. So I think that will be the, the reality of the situation. The interests on both sides do not change. The fundamentals don't change. But the form has certainly been better in terms of the relations between Australia and ASEAN countries. I wanted to pivot to the ICS State of Southeast Asia survey report that Mike had mentioned at the top of, of this. And as we were saying before we clicked record, this has really become a go-to source for policymakers here in the U.S., but across Europe and other regions to understand the breadth and depth of issues and concerns and views in the region. So this has just been an incredibly helpful tool as U.S. policymakers try to navigate this complicated geopolitical environment. And it's a good place to actually segue to something you mentioned in, in your initial remarks, which is how the region is looking at this strategic competition between the United States and China. One of the questions asked is top-level concerns that Southeast Asians have, and 73% of respondents worried about ASEAN becoming an arena of major power competition and its member states becoming great power proxies. I wonder if we could start there and if you could just give us a, a sense of, of the concerns or views as ASEAN watches this deterioration of, of US-China relations and what strategies do you see ASEAN member states adopting as they try to navigate this uncertain territory? Okay, perhaps let me start by talking about what are the things that Southeast Asia really wants. I think this is something that is not very different from what it wanted all along, but it is coming into greater uncertainty because of what's happening. ASEAN countries, I think, want to have the ability to continue to focus on economic development. And this really requires there to be a, an environment of stability and peace. So this is really what ASEAN as a region has enjoyed for quite a long time. And it would very much not, not, not like to lose this. Secondly, I think that ASEAN countries would like to be able to develop these relations and to benefit from those relations without a artificial constraint or limit because of the ideology or values. And I think that is something that's challenged by the fact that the US and China have are undergoing strains between the two sides. So this is really quite a normal aspiration by the region. So these really you like uh, set the stage for what regional countries would like to aspire towards. And of course, the third and quite important thing, and this is where, in a sense, the origins of ASEAN come about, and that is that the region would like to have agency over what happens in the region itself. This is described and seen in, in some countries as what ASEAN centrality really is about, right? to be able to have the ability to influence regional developments. So the 
recent developments on, shall we say, competition between U.S. and China, that is really causing concern for all three aspects of what the region would like to attain to because there is the possibility of conflict between U.S. and China. Not that either side wants to have conflict, but that because of competition, misunderstandings occur, and it could lead to a conflict that neither side is really planning to, to enter into. It could also cause a problem for the individual countries on how they relate between U.S. and China or with U.S. and China. This takes away uh, something from uh, ASEAN's own vision of its centrality and agency. So these are the things that uh, ASEAN has to grapple with. And I think that these are the things which the respondents to our survey are concerned about. Uh, having said that, I think that there are still some other developments that we should not discount. So while ASEAN itself does want to have good relations with both sides, it is wanting engagement to be stronger with external partners. One of the reasons is that to some extent, China is fairly dominant in the economic arena in the region. And this does cause some discomfort because it would like to be more diversified. Secondly, I think that the US and China conflict competition leads to a certain amount of bifurcation, or shall we call it certainly not fully uh, decoupled, but uh, some degree of uh, changes will take place. And this will cause some degree of uh, economic instability. So these are the factors that the uh, ASEAN countries have to deal with in the uh, current environment. And they will be also watching it very carefully to see how these factors continue to uh, affect the region. Speaking of that, we just had the visit to Beijing by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. I'm curious, in light of this, the structural anxieties that ASEAN member states have about the broader trend of U.S.-China strategic rivalry or strategic competition, how do you sense countries in the region are evaluating individual dynamics. So for example, after Blinken's visit, was there a, a sigh of relief across the region or was the view that this was a very small step and there were still lots of landmines ahead? I think that uh, what has happened did start from the recent visit, but it started way back in November when uh, President Biden met with President Xi Jinping in uh, uh, Bali. I think that was already an attempt to bring the relationship back on track, at least to stop further spiraling downwards. So if there was a sigh of relief, it was uh, first heard, I would say, in November last year. And then that same sigh of relief, I think, would have been heard after Lincoln's visit to Beijing just recently. Of course, this is such a dynamic relationship that you know, soon after the visit by Secretary Blinken, we already see other complications start to affect the relationship. But the overall trend towards trying to bring the relationship to some kind of a stable state, I think, is strongly supported by the region. 
and the region certainly hopes that it will succeed both for the benefit of the two sides and also for the benefit of the rest of the world. The most nightmare scenario that the region dreads is there will be an accidental conflict that neither side wants. It is something that they do not discount. However, things are not likely to improve overnight because uh, I think the interests are still fundamentally divergent and I think the misunderstandings that the two sides have of each other goes on full display all the time, including immediately after Blinken's visit. Now, I want to take your point fully that ASEAN members and countries in the region don't want to be forced to pick sides. They don't want choices defined for them. They want agency. But, and now I'm just quoting from the the survey, you did ask a question which is if ASEAN were forced to align itself with one of the two strategic rivals, which should it choose? And I think it's interesting, and I I wonder if you could help us interpret this. You know, the top line from this is between last year's survey and this year's, you've seen a diminishment of respondents saying they would choose China and conversely an increase saying they would choose the United States. So in the Chinese case, down from 43% to 38% year on year. And for the United States, from 57% in 2022 to 61%. Now, of course, there's a lot of context around this, which would define what it means to sort of align oneself or, or make a choice. But I wonder if you could help interpret what you see that number is indicating. Is that growing concerns about China? Or is that a a more favorable view of the direction of the United States? Or is it a bit of a combination of both? Well, I think that it definitely is a a combination of many things. So one of the factors, I think, if you look further back in the surveys, you know, sort of results as the trends, you would probably see that the U.S. actually, when the Biden administration was actually about to come in, there was a, a strong Search in the level of, shall we say, expectations of the U.S., more favorable expectations of the U.S. So that's certainly one factor that played into that. But more recently, I would say that there's also been other uh, factors. So other than the hypothetical question in the survey, which asks uh, respondents to choose between uh, U.S. or China if they had to choose, um, there were also other questions in the survey that asked the respondents to rate uh, both US and China. And I think that one significant result was that China's rating actually also fell significantly at the same time in terms of the role that it plays as a leader in terms of free trade and also upholding a rules-based order. This could have been due to China's having to grapple with its COVID issues in the past year, and particularly its very strict uh, zero COVID policy, and also the border closures that uh, happened in China during that time. It could also be because of this relationship that China had with Russia, which actually came about at a very unfortunate time just before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and how that actually played into its subsequent choices on how it would position itself 
both these factors would have weighed, I think, on the minds of respondents when they come around to making this hypothetical choice between US and China. So there are uh, a number of factors that go into that. I think on the US side, the Biden administration has shown that it is very much leaning towards engaging the region. The fact that it could launch uh, IPATH and try to move forward, I think that that also was well received by the region. I'm going to turn it to Mike right now, but I should just say for listeners, we're not doing justice to the sophistication and, and depth of the survey results because even that top line question of strategic alignment, arguably the more interesting thing is they you do break it down by member state. And so you see wide degrees of variability across members, including some interesting swings year to year. So again, just recommend that everyone goes and, and digs into the, the actual survey results. Absolutely. I go over this every year. It's really, really interesting. The breakdown by country, the temperature, the trends you see are, are really quite interesting. One thing that struck me this year was how robust support was for the Quad. In the past, the Quad got favorable ratings from Vietnam, which is always more focused on balance of power. That was about it. But this year, 69% of respondents across ASEAN in your survey said that they thought the Quad was actually making a positive contribution and was complementary to ASEAN's own diplomatic and political efforts. What changed, do you think, to make the Quad, and what listen is there perhaps for AUKUS, but what changed to make the Quad so much more acceptable within Southeast Asia? I think that was because the Quad itself actually did something substantively different. I think the feeling was that it should do something that was helpful to the world and to the region. And I think that the fact that Quad moved its agenda from that which was really solely a security focused kind of agenda to something that was much more practical. So we saw the Quad actually delivering public goods in areas such as uh, vaccines. And of course, this started in the depth of the COVID-19 crisis that the world was still grappling with at that time, the region too. And so that was seen as very helpful. Quads, if you like, positioning to try and be helpful on climate cooperation. Uh, I think that was also helpful even in areas such as playing a role in infrastructure coordination among the Quad and in connectivity. So there were many other issues which Quad took on its agenda, including in trade promotion and facilitation. I think all these areas different from what the perception was of the Quad before. So I think the earlier uh, head, which was very much focusing on military to military cooperation, whether it is in humanitarian areas and then later on moving into more strategic areas. I think that was uh, seen to be a, a harsher agenda that would have not been inclusive enough, but the subsequent agenda was very much more inclusive. And therefore, I think ASEAN saw no reason not to support this new agenda. And indeed, I think even positively appreciates it. It was a smart play by the Biden administration and by their counterparts in Delhi, Tokyo, and Canberra. I would argue it's the return to the original role of the Quad back in 2004 and five, which was, yes, it was military, but it was humanitarian and disaster relief after the tsunami. And that, that first move ever by the Quad was very well received in ASEAN. 
But for the same reasons you're talking about, it was not about competition with China or Russia or anybody. It was about providing public goods to the region and especially ASEAN. So important lesson there, for sure. One thing that I should ask you about, and it, it doesn't really come up in the survey, is Taiwan. You mentioned earlier the fear in ASEAN as a, an accident or unintended crisis leading to war between the US and China. But there's another scenario that we talk about a lot on this podcast because it's on the minds of experts and policymakers in US, Japan, Australia, and of course, Taiwan, which is not an accidental war, but a deliberate war over Taiwan, perhaps one initiated by Beijing. Do you or do your colleagues in think tank world in Southeast Asia spend a lot of time worrying about this scenario? You know, there's a lot of talk about 2027 and certain dates that you'll hear from government officials and experts in Japan, the US, Taiwan, Australia, and Europe even. In Southeast Asia is, and among your colleagues and experts in the region, is there a similar kind of concern about deliberate war in the Taiwan Strait? No, I don't think that here in the region there is the same degree of fixation on a particular date or a particular deadline for a conflict to break out in, in the Taiwan Straits. Uh, while the region is very much concerned that an accident could happen, it doesn't really think that either side wants war. So I think there is this desync between, you know, sort of what's happening in some of the circles in, in Washington and the thinking in Southeast Asia. It does believe that there are vital interests to China that are at risk in Taiwan. And therefore, the Chinese do have a very strong desire to reunify. But I think that the talk about a deadline, the talk about you know that this has to occur within, say, the decade, all this, I don't think is the thinking within this, this part of the world. Perhaps the media is not amplifying the talk about that the same degree here in this region as perhaps it is in, uh, in Washington. I tend to agree with you. I think Jude probably does too, that Xi Jinping doesn't have a calendar up on his kitchen with a big red circle around a date in 2027 or 2030 or whatever scenario you pick. But this is a real point of disconnect, I think, between the strategic communities in Southeast Asia and the strategic communities in not just the US, but Japan, probably Australia, uh, and certainly Taiwan, where there is, whether you think there's a target date or not, a clear sense that the PLA posture, the People's Liberation Army posture, is more menacing. And so a lot more discussion about what we would do in a Taiwan contingency among governments and also among experts, but much less so in Southeast Asia, with the possible exception of the Philippines, which is right there near the front lines. It's interesting. It is one area. Maybe next year in the survey, you can ask some Taiwan questions. I think you'd get a lot of attention. If I could, one absolutely fascinating question for me and for Jude was about the United States. You asked in the survey, why do you trust the United States? It was not a rhetorical question. It was an actual question. It was not why do you trust the United States? It was explain the reasons why you'd trust the United States. And I thought it'd be really interesting for listeners to have you explain the result and what you think it means in terms of how the Biden administration should continue engaging ASEAN. 
So I think that the top reason cited by respondents why they trust the United States was that the United States has the wherewithal. So it possesses the uh, kind of economic resources and also the political will to provide global leadership. Almost 40% of respondents cited this reason. And it was closely, well, slightly closely followed by the reason that the U.S. military power can be and is an asset global peace and security, about 30%. So those two reasons are important or stronger reasons. The third one is that the U.S., in terms of its positioning as a responsible stakeholder and the way that it upholds, respects and champions international law, that's also another important reason the uh, region actually trusts the U.S. Why do they take this? I think that political will and resources is an important signal that the U.S. is committed to the region. It is quite clear in this part of the world that the U.S. itself is going through a very intense domestic political debate. And of course, election time is not far away. When that happens, you will see a lot of reporting about different positioning, I think, uh, in, in the U.S. domestic circles. And actually, in the midst of this, sometimes the, you know, the noise is such that actually foreign policy doesn't figure at all. <laughs> and neither does uh, certainly the region feature in any of these domestic political debates. So the continued exercise political will by the U.S. government, for example, in participating in regional uh, discussions and uh, regional meetings, uh, that demonstration, despite what is happening in terms of domestic political debates, I think is an important signal that can enhance the trust of the region towards the U.S. The respect and the measures uh, done to uphold international law obviously is a very important part of what ASEAN countries really require. That is something which uh, it looks to the US to uphold. I must say that in the survey, there is actually another separate question which asks the respondents to assess the countries various countries' leadership, various powers' leadership in maintaining a rules-based international order. And the number, the percentage of respondents that actually chose the U.S. has declined. Although the U.S. remains in the first place among all the countries, all the powers that are, that are mentioned as cited as options, the U.S. percentage declined from 36% to 27% in the most recent survey. So while this is a factor of trust, it is, it is slipping a little in the, in the minds of the region. So yeah, in the, in the end, I think the, the region looks to the signals that the administration sends as to whether it can really trust the administration and whether it will continue to uphold the U.S. commitment to the region. So trends which are you know seemingly not trends that are uh, with, with regard to do with foreign policy can uh, influence perceptions here too. If you recall back uh, during the time of the uh, 
Trump administration, I think that uh, there were many instances when uh, the you know it wasn't just America first, but it kind of drifted towards America only, and I think that would have severe uh, implications in terms of perceptions. I think of, of the region when the Biden administration put out its early report, the White House report on the Indo-Pacific strategy, the target audience was clearly the region and in particular Southeast Asia. And I think the Biden administration will be pretty pleased with this year's results. It's not meant to be a report card on how they're doing, but the Quad with 69% support, the shift in preferring to balance with the US rather than balance with China, the positive views of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, IPEF, which frankly in Washington gets a lot more criticism than it does in Southeast Asia. Overall, I think that the administration will be pretty pleased. But as you note, we have an election coming. So the United States of America never makes it too easy to love us for too long. And we'll see how the results might be affected by the debate that's going to come out. I hope people in in the region, I know people in your institute appreciate that in Washington, there is a bipartisan consensus that is pretty robust now, at least in Congress and think tanks and the general public, that Asia matters more than it ever has, more than any other region, and that Southeast Asia is a critical, critical part of that. And your surveys really help keep the United States and the other dialogue partners honest. So thank you for doing it. And uh, Shinkwak, thanks so much for joining us today. Really enlightening. Please go to the survey on the ISEAS, ICS website. It's really, really well done. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.